Greetings and welcome on board WKOK Sunrise as the communities around here observe their 250th anniversaries. We're going to keep on talking to some of the folks who are in the know around this area. We talked to Hope Kopf last week, and she is following some of the activities that are going to be taking place in King Street Park and some of the other places in Northumberland. Of course, we were lucky enough in the past few weeks to talk to some of the other folks that are associated with Northumberland's history. Noel Long gave us a good piece of information. We'll talk to Glenda Strauss in the days and weeks ahead. But today, I'm glad to say that uh, we have uh, a person that's pretty informed around here and has a great memory. John Moore is with us, lives in Northumberland. I'll call him a historian, but he's a real history buff when it comes to this area and way past the civilized portion of the history or what we might call civilization. You could argue that Native Americans had the first civilization, right? Oh, absolutely, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, and the, the, the Native Americans, also known as American Indians, and the first people lived in our valley for thousands and thousands of years. And not too many years ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago, some archaeologists were out on Route 11 along the North Branch in the Central Builders site, and way down, six, eight feet down, they came upon a uh, a point, beautiful point that was thousands and thousands of years old and somebody had dropped it or left it at a campsite and the river flooded and covered with many feet of, of debris before Over the, the archaeologists had the good luck to and find And you it. mean an arrowhead point. Well, it would actually be several thousands of years before bows and arrows were invented. Hmm. And this would have been for a spear point. Okay. So yes. it was a fairly lengthy, couple inches long and nicely made out of flint. And quite quite something to see um, right in the site, sticking out of the wall. They were very lucky to find it, and, and they knew it. Uh, Native Americans lived here for many years. For a good while, this region was dominated by the Susquehannock Indians. In the late 1600s, the Iroquois conquered the Susquehannocks, and the Iroquois became the overlords for this valley. And in the 1700s, as people from Europe were beginning to move into the seaboard, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, New York, Native American bands began moving. They were displaced. Many came up here, and they came up here with the permission of the Iroquois. What is now Sunbury and Packer Island and Northumberland became an important Indian village in the early 1700s, and it was known as Shermokan, and that's not quite how you would pronounce it. Early writers, English writers who were doing things phonetically referred to it as Shamoking or Shamoking, and our Shermokan is, is a kind of a, a bland derivative of that. In the 1740s, an early missionary from eastern Pennsylvania, the Reverend David Brainerd, came by visiting. He had an interpreter who was an Indian man and visited the island and what is now uh, the northern part of the Sunbury. And he wrote in his journal that uh, the, the town of Shemoking lies partly on the east side of the river, which would be Sunbury, partly on the west, which would be along the Priestley Avenue segment of Northumberland, and partly on a long, large island 
and he said that and he didn't disapprove. He was a kind of a sour man. Uh, the Indians of this place are the most drunken, mischievous, and ruffian-like ruffian-like fellows in, of any in these parts. Satan seems to have his seat in this town. Oh my gosh, the town was lost then. Okay, so there's a glimpse at history before uh, what we might call civilization, but obviously they had a very civilized society set up among the Iroquois and and a lot of uh, peaceful opportunities for people to live here. Uh, John is also an author, has written nine books, most of whom deal with this frontier life that's starting to start to emerge in the next chapter about what he's talking about. He's also a newspaper man, worked for the Wall Street Journal within the Dow Jones Company and the Daily Adam uh, back in the day. But uh, our greatest joy is reading his books and following him and hearing him talk. So, okay, so let's start to transition. We're celebrating 250th years of anniversary. What happened 250 years ago around here? By 1772, the Indians were long gone. The French and Indian War had changed the population. The Indians had left during the 1750s. 1768, major change. The Iroquois Indians sold a huge amount of land, including the land that we're sitting on today, to Pennsylvania. New York also acquired huge territory. So did Virginia. This was in 1768 and referred to as the Purchase of 1768. That's significant because that opened this region to settlement by white people. Before then, a few Indian traders had come up and had small trading posts, but there were no towns, basically. 1768 opened the region, and the first wave to come up were men like... William McClay, Samuel McClay, who were surveyors, and they began surveying and laying out tracts of land, and then the land speculators out of Philadelphia and Baltimore and the big cities began buying up large tracts of land. Herbert Francis, for instance, bought up huge amounts of land. And by 1772, there were so many people now living in Northumberland, now living in Sunbury, that the legislature in March 1772 created the county of Northumberland. And then that same year, the town of Northumberland was created by the legislature, and the town of Sunbury was created. But you had to have land that people could live on, and you had to have people come and settle it before you could create the communities. And so 1772 was a major year following hard on the heels. And what was what was the region like in 1772? Well, I crossed what everybody calls the White Bridge to come up here today. Well, um, there was no White Bridge. There was no bridge anywhere. There were no bridges at all. Uh, The first bridge wasn't built until 1814. That was between Northumberland and Sunbury and across the island. And it was not a free bridge. It was owned by private investors, and it was a toll bridge. And if I had a, a carriage... With two wheels, it was drawn by one horse. I had to pay a quarter to cross from Northumberland to Sunbury. But if I had two horses pulling my two-wheel carriage, I had to pay 50 cents to get across. And if I was a farmer and I was driving 
a herd of pigs or sheep to market, I had to pay two cents a sheep, two cents a pig. So if I had a flock of 50 pigs, that's a lot of a lot of ham, obviously. Now, was there ever a fa- there was no bridge at that time, so you either had to canoe across or use a boat to get across. Or take a ferry boat. A Absolutely. ferry boat. Could you ford across the river at any point? Well, you could in low water, maybe in in July and August, but that's also hurricane season, so you had to take. It was very uneven. And, and so the better thing to do was to take to take the ferry boat. And there were ferries that were established fairly early. Back in the day, in the 1750s, there were no ferries. And to get across, you had to use a canoe. And canoes were not birch bark canoes. There were no such thing as aluminum canoes or fiberglass canoes. These were dugout canoes. Uh, men would chop down a tree, a huge tree, and then scoop out... The, the trunk and carve it into a, into a, a dugout and these were heavy and they were they could be 25 feet long some of them and they could carry 10 12 14 16 people and if everybody was rowing in a coordinated fashion it got going pretty quickly uh, but th- this was something very very old so we had our first bridge in 1814 the first newspapers came along 1792, and the first newspaper in the region was the Sunbury and Northumberland Gazette. The funny thing was that the Gazette office was in Northumberland. Hmm. Where? I'm not sure. It would have been down somewhere around the intersection of what is now uh, Front or Water and um, Queen Street or, or Duke Street. In the downtown. In the downtown area, yeah. And then in 1800, so Sunbury had to wait eight years to get a newspaper of its own. And when the first newspaper came out in Sunbury, it was titled Der Freiheitsvogel, and it was a German-language paper. And I think that reflected the fact that a lot of the people in Sunbury spoke German, not English. 1812, an English-speaking paper came out, and this was the Times, and that was also in Sunbury. The third paper in, in Sunbury, the fourth in the region, was Der Northumberland Republicaner. And that was also a German-language paper. And it was founded by John Youngman. The first stagecoach didn't come around until 1794, 22 years after the founding of, of the two communities. Actually, I'm sorry, I'm misreading. 1798. Joseph Priestley's writing a letter. He's saying, we now have a stage wagon to Philadelphia, which goes once in about six weeks. So if you were a traveler and you wanted to take the stagecoach to Philadelphia, you could wait. And when that came up in five or six weeks, you could get your fare. And the trip took about five or six days all overland. When Northumberland County was created, there were judges. There was a sheriff. Any good sheriff has to have a jail. Well, there was no jail. What to do? And there were the remains of Fort Augusta were still in use. There were some houses and the buildings, the officers' quarters, etc., were being used for the county government offices. The court was being held there. William McClay, who was one of the first county officials, realized that the powder magazine from the old fort was an underground brick building, and he thought that would make an excellent dungeon. His word, dungeon. And so for a short period of time, 
the powder magazine became Northumberland County's jail. Imagine doing 30 days down there. <laughs> no facilities. One no way in, one way out. Right? One way in, one way out. Steep stairs, uh, no ventilation, no windows, no running water. And if you have two, three, four, five people down there with you, it was a room about 12 feet by 15 feet. And it got used. It looks the same as it did today, right? Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it, the building exists, and it's part of the, uh, on the grounds of the Northumberland County Historical Society. It was built in 1758. We know the name of the man who designed it. He was a military engineer. And I think, arguably, it's the oldest existing structure in Northumberland County, 1758. And not exactly hospitable housing for inmates. I wouldn't want to spend There would be a lawsuit if you did that today. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, and they kept a half a dozen folks in there, and, of course, no air or ventilation. You could crack the door, but in February, how, how far cracked do you want it to be, you know? Not very. Right, so... And you had no heating, other than the warm human bodies. Okay. You had no heating. Okay, so perfect jail in some folks' mind. All right, so we're starting to see uh, our area starting to develop at that point. Again, back to this 1772 year, what starts happening in Sunbury? Let's start there. A few people beginning to build. They're building houses that are of log cabins. There are no roads at this point. So what we have is a village that's congregated, concentrated along the river, and it has the, the main stem. And a, a, a traveling uh, clergyman, the Reverend Philip Vickers Fithian, came by in 1775, and he describes all the boats. He looks out his window. He's staying in Northumberland, but he's seeing... He's seeing uh, all the all the boats up and down the river. It's just just an awful lot of activity going on. People were building log houses. There was lots of timber. These people, many of them, came up with maybe tools, uh, maybe firearms. Uh, their families. They didn't have a lot of money. There weren't a lot of things to buy. They went out, used their own resourcefulness, and they felled down trees in the in the nearby forest and brought them to town and put them up in their lots and began to erect very simple uh, log cabins, one story and maybe two rooms. And you had no uh, indoor plumbing at that time, so people were, were out there digging wells by hand, and they're concentrating along the high spot in Sunbury, which would be along North Front Street. And if you go up the intersection of Market and Front, there is an old building with a marker that says 1772. And that looks very much like a log cabin covered over by some type of masonry or stucco or, or something. And that's the high part. If you go up several blocks, four or five blocks up from uh, market in front, up along Front Street, you'll see that's higher. And that would have been high for when the, the occasional floods came by. Floods yeah. in those days were called freshets. Not floods. It's the spring freshet, the fall freshet, F-R-E-S-H-E-T, hmm. an unusual word I've not seen outside of history books. Maybe because it freshened up the soil in the uh, farmlands that, that would be was. covered up, you know, whatever farm fields there sure. were. Okay, so you have Sunbury emerging here. Mm -hmm. uh, what is Island Park being used for at this time? Probably farming. And I can't, I can't talk about specifics, but there was no concentration of houses 
it's going to be a place for a, a would-be toll collector to live because he's got two bridges at this coming up. Ferrymen are, are working along the island, so you're going to have agricultural use. You're, you're going to be chopping down the wood, and, but it's going to be pretty rough. That's going to be part of the latter part to develop. Northumberland's going to be developing first. And Northumberland, because it's at the point, has an economic advantage over Sunbury because people going up the West Branch, going up the North Branch, are going to be able to get to Northumberland when they come down to go to market first. In uh, 1772, two very enterprising young men come up. One is named William Hoffman. The other is uh, Philip Frick. And they came up from Lancaster. They didn't come overland with a horse and wagon. There were no roads, basically, at that time. They arrived in a canoe. And my hunch is that it was a log canoe. And Hoffman was a carpenter. So he probably had his saws and hammers and keg of nails and whatever. Frick was a brewmaster. And he probably had the equipment that he needed to make small quantities of beer. And they were entrepreneurs, and they came to Northumberland to establish a brewery. And this would have been in the old part of town, somewhere down around King Street Park, but I'm not sure where, down maybe between King Street Park and the bridge to the island. What we do know is that Hoffman got to work right away and built a, a cabin, and the Frick set up a brewery, began making beer in the cabin. And so early on, if you worked very hard in a farm or at your trade in Northumberland, you could go to Frick's Brewery and get yourself some beer. Now, whether it was going to be cold, I'm not, I've got my doubts because we had no way to make ice. And at that point, we were not storing ice uh, cut from the river in January. At that time, so okay. So the beer would have been warm beer, yeah. Okay, um, but fresh beer and plentiful if he had enough plentiful. barrels going. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if that's your all-day activity, yeah. you can and, be putting up beer all year round. So Frick's Brewery is developing, and what does Hoffman become, and what does he do? I would think he just continued to work at his carpenter's trade. So he's helping. Uh, yeah, sure. And then, and then they vanish from the records. We don't really know a whole lot about them. We do know that in the 1790s, when Joseph Priestley arrived, Northumberland had about 100 houses. Nearly all of them made of logs. And when Joseph Priestley decided that he was going to build that fine mansion that we see today down on Priestley Avenue, he had a problem because the carpenters, presumably Hoffman and his colleagues, uh, knew how to build in log, but they did not know how to build in frame. And Priestley had to send down to Philadelphia for a crew of carpenters that were able to make a house out of lumber, clappered, and and be able to frame it. And so they had to come up and live until their part of the construction was done. Did they have to run a sawmill here? There was was a sawmill over on the West Branch by the mid-1790s. And they were able to get the wood... And get the get the lumber to the mill, and and they were able to get the lumber that they needed, but it was uncured lumber, and they needed to cure the lumber. 
there were no facilities for curing lumber because lumber was not, <laughs> boards were not anything of any use at that time. And so the priestly construction people dug a long trench right in, in the, what's now the front yard, the, the yard along on the riverside. And it was several feet wide, maybe three to four feet deep. And then they built platforms and to support lumber. Then they put lots of charcoal in the bottom and set fire to the charcoal, placed the, the, the boards, the green boards on, and then covered the trench and kept the fires going for several weeks. And in the end, they had the cured lumber that they that were then able to use to build the house. And when you look at the house today, the, the most of the the exterior clapboard is clapboard made of lumber that was cured on site and very very uh ingenious arrangement. In this case the process of curing is removing most of the moisture and making sure that it's not going to warp excessively exactly right. once you use it. So they would have the boards cut and then uh, probably floated to there to get them there. Oh, uh, they probably carried them overland on wagons. Okay, so they're they're, yeah. they're so they're they're paying the toll yeah. at the, at the uh, yeah. at the bridges there. Yeah. And occasionally, well the Priestly House is a good spot you can ford to the island, but that doesn't mean you can necessarily ford directly to Sunbury either, so you're not sure, you know, that that's still not a reliable way to get across the river. So we have the priestly the priestly legacy begins in right. Northumberland, and there will be right. generation after generation of priestly right. family and siblings and wives, and that would have a tremendous impact on Northumberland over the yes, years. Yes, it would. Right. All right, so let's uh, go back over to Sunbury. We have the first houses there. We have what is now Attorney Boop's office uh, right. in Sunbury, and we have some other places developing. Okay. Uh, and again, mostly log or stone structures? Mostly log. In fact, by 1775, when Reverend Fithian comes to town, there's only one stone house. And that's the McClay House at the corner of Race and Front. That's now the McClay Wolverton. Arch and Front. Arch and I'm whoa, sorry. Yep, that's Arch right. and Front. I didn't mean to move the house on us. <laughs> you no, can't move this. Yeah, these yeah, aren't the houses you move. Yeah, sure. And two stories yet? Not yet. It was one story. It was stone. The second story was added by Wolverton during the 1800s. If you go and stand on the corner and examine the house, you'll see the large chunks of quarried stone that McClay used, and then you'll see an entirely different kind of stone, different finish, that Wolverton used. And the house was extensively renovated on the inside, but much of the outside uh, re- remains, and you can tell. In fact, uh, if you look at the big stones, uh, window sills on the Arch Street side, soldiers were posted there during the Revolution as guards, and they got bored, and so they chiseled their names into the window sills. And you can, there some of them you can read. Some of them are very difficult to read, but they're very definitely the names of names of people, and the. Legend is that th- th- these were made by soldiers. I and I believe it. Soldiers did that kind of thing. McClay put up a stockade around his house and used it as a powder magazine. So Sunbury had two two powder magazines. One that was used as a jail, and one that was a house used to store ammunition and gunpowder. That was that was kind of interesting. Um, other houses were made of of log at that point. Uh, they got fancy uh, while they 
The houses in Sunbury remained log, but over the years they became fancified. And in the, uh, the 1790s, a lawyer from London named Thomas Cooper uh, visited Sunbury and uh, Northumberland as well. And he said that these are towns of about 200 to 300 houses in each. So they've really doubled, tripled over the last 20 years. And in the 1770s, the houses were logs. Now he's saying they're built partly of logs, partly of framework, and some are uh, two stories high. Some have been painted on the outside. All of them are neat. They're comfortable. Inside, there are windows with glaze, plain wainscoting, doors with panels, and latches with lock and thumb latches. So they're getting sophisticated. They're still right. Somebody's still getting working. fancified. Yeah, getting fancified. Yeah. <laughs> Travel was still pretty primitive. He took the ferry to go to Northumberland, and when he left Sunbury, going back to Philadelphia, and his boat back to England. He and his companions were riding on horses, and they rode down along the Susquehanna to Harrisburg. And they were looking for a place to stay, and they finally came to a place somewhere down around Herndon with a farmer. There were no hotels, no no places, no real public inns um, in 1793. But this farmer put them up, and he was amazed to find that the farmer had not one, not two, but three stills. And the farmer gave him an extensive tour in the morning, and in his in his uh, book of travels in America, uh, Cooper wrote about all the various stills that this farmer had and different kinds of whiskeys that he could make. It's interesting to note that this farmer was along the river, and he could take his his grain crops, his whiskeys, his rye, and distill them, put them in barrels, and then put them in boats and float them down river to where he could then get them to market in Philadelphia or Baltimore, which were much more populous than, than up here. Oh, okay. Way, so this this is big-time commerce developing big time here. Big-time commerce, yeah. We're, we're really developing. And if you lot. had a barrel full of whiskey and you're going to take it to Philadelphia, you're, what, about two weeks away from arriving there? Probably two weeks, sure. Something in that because you're Because it's going to go down to Middletown, the mouth of the Swatara, then it'll be transferred to a wagon, and it'll go overland down over to Lancaster at what is now Route 30. It's going to take quite a while. Yeah, And most of the slow. trip is going to be by land, then. you can't. Much of the trip. You're not going to go all the Much way out the to the trip. Chesapeake Bay and then back up Much or anything like that. We have a, just a tiny glimpse. And, you know, as much as we're talking about, we're leaving out hundreds and hundreds of pages and details and names and, and activities that are happening. So in the 1770s, Northumberland County itself is emerging as a county. I remember from your talk the other night at our semi-quincentennial kickoff, that the county is uh, a broad, expansive county at the time. One of the largest counties ever in Pennsylvania history. It was one of a number of counties, but it, it went way up the North Branch, up into what is now Luzerne County. On the west, it went way out the West Branch to Lock Haven, so that during the Revolutionary War, 
the lieutenant in charge of the Northumberland County Militia was responsible for protecting the frontier from what is now Wilkes-Barre, Berwick, all the way over to Lock Haven and beyond, which is a huge territory. Once we got up the West Branch, the northern side of the West Branch was Indian territory. So that was necessary. You know, the Indians had that. But Colonel Hunter at Sunbury had to have troops that he could move in and out, back and forth, whenever Indian raids were were coming. And he had to have men out in the field who could scout and let him know in advance, if possible, when a war party was coming down. And war parties could come down the West Branch very quickly. They would come down in in canoes, fleets of canoes. They might be 75, 80 at a time. They might come down the North Branch. Now, on the North Branch, that was complicated because you had people from Connecticut who had invaded that part of Pennsylvania, and they had set up their own their own uh, government and their own settlements. But Where are these Connecticuters? These are Connecticut. They're they're going to be at um, uh, Wilkes-Barre and maybe down as far as Nanticoke, Plymouth. Uh, up in the they're, Wyoming they're Valley. Up in the Wyoming Valley. Up in that area. And yeah. why are we fighting with Indians? When the Revolutionary War started, the British wanted the Indians to stay neutral. The Americans wanted the Indians to stay neutral. And both sides explained to the Indians that this is a fight between the father and the son. It's a family fight. You're not part of the family. You don't need to get involved. And yet each side saw that if it enlisted Indians, it might score an advantage over its enemy. And so we got Indians to fight for us, and the British got Indians to fight for them. And in the end, Indians were involved in both sides. Here in this particular region, we were dominated by the Iroquois, and the Iroquois had long-standing alliances with the British, and they they all, most of them, especially the Western uh, Iroquois, came down here with a vengeance and a fury, and, and repeatedly from say 1777 through 1782. Native American warriors tended to come down on specific raids, and they came down for scalps. And they came down for prisoners. And once they got, they, they, once they, they burned the settlement out or a homestead and they, they got their scalps and they got their prisoners, they left. They weren't coming down to, to conquer territory and to keep territory. All right. So it was just as you described, or a raid in and, and out. Okay. So that hit took care run. of that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So the uh, Northumberland County is huge. That is why to this day, if you have somebody doing a genealogy from Clinton County, they'll come down here exactly. to look at the earliest, earliest records. Exactly. Union County, Snyder County, Montour County, Columbia County, Lycoming County, they all, carved all out. came out of Clinton County. They all came out of of uh, Northumberland County. In terms of early governance, uh, tell us about, you know, the need for a courthouse is going to develop. Where where are we in terms of settling that in Sunbury? Uh, in the beginning, the old buildings from Fort Augusta were used. They were they were spare. And from 1772 through 1775, they were adequate. And then when the Revolutionary War came along, Colonel Hunter needed those buildings for military purposes. 
and they were used throughout the war. So there probably was a sharing in the beginning. Government in those days was very small, very limited, and you could get three or four people to sit down and have a meeting, and then the clerk could take the records home with him. When I say him, ladies, sorry, there were no women involved in colonial government, American government at this time. Um, That happened later. Um, One of the guiding lights of Northumberland County was William McClay. He uh, was a, a... uh, a justice. He also was uh, the clerk of courts of prothonotary. And after the adoption of the U.S. Constitution, uh, he was one of Pennsylvania's first United States senators. And one senator had a six-year term. The other senator had a two-year term. And they flipped. They, I guess they tossed coin. And McClay won the two-year term. The So he attended the very first... Uh, sessions of the United States Senate. The capital of the U.S. was in New York City, and he kept quite a diary. Back in the day, the Senate did not keep records of its day-to-day proceedings. And over time, historians realized that about the very best account they had of day-to-day activity in the U.S. Senate that first couple of years was the diary kept by William McClay. And his diaries are posted on the U.S. Senate website, and uh, they're identified as his because he did such a good and thorough job. And I've read them. They're, they're interesting. They can be dull, too. One of the things I thought was very interesting was about his dinner arrangements for August 27, 1789. One of his political foes invited him to dinner. His foe happened to be President George Washington. <laughs> a foe. Oh, a foe, oh. right. And uh, so McClay and, and a, a senator from the state of Delaware went together. They were friends, and they went to the president's house. And the hostess was Martha Washington, and other guests included uh, the vice president, a fellow named John Adams, and the vice president's wife, Abigail Adams, um, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, or rather the man who shortly would become the chief justice of the Supreme Court. John Jay was also there. And um, McClay tells us that they had soup, fish that was roasted and boiled, ham, beef, fowl. They had desserts, a variety, apple pies and pudding. And then iced creams. No, that's not ice cream. That's iced creams. Uh, Jellies. And then watermelon, muskmelon, apples, peaches, nuts. And he said that um, George and Martha sat opposite each other in the middle of the table. It was a great dinner. And it was the best of the kind I ever was at. Now, note, it's August 27th. There are maybe 15 people in this dinner, plus servants. It's a small room. (laughs) And, (laughs) quote, the room was disagreeably warm, and the company was not cheerful, was not friendly, no laughing like in the, the traditional dinners. Everybody, it was the most solemn dinner ever I sat at. Scarce a word said. And then McClay gives us a detail about George Washington 
when the tablecloth, when the table was clear and the tablecloth was taken away, the president kept a fork in his hand. He played with the fork, striking it on the edge of the table. We did not sit long after the ladies retired. The president rose, went upstairs to drink coffee. The company followed. As for me, I took my hat and came home. Isn't that some, that is amazing? Great, great. Well, I'm I'm so glad people kept a diary back then, and and that helped us. All right. Well, we're out of time, but I really want to tell you. Why is history so fascinating for us to hear these details and to picture them and to and to hear from the diaries and to picture the old houses and to try to cross the river in our minds uh, in a canoe bar or a boat or a ferry? Why is that? You've you've covered this long enough. I don't know. I I just have always loved it. It gets my imagination going. I try and just think back. Coming up County Line Road today, I was thinking about when that was an old Indian trail that led all the way to Pittsburgh. Right. You could get to the top of the mountain and just keep on going for a few weeks and away you go. But it would have only been wide enough for one person, not two of us to walk side by side. Yeah, and I just I just like imagining things like that. Well, thank you so much for all you've done. I want to have you back as the as the 250th anniversary of uh, Sunbury and Northumberland. And I guess Packer Island, too, is involved right, in this. Sure. And Northumberland County continues. John Moore is a historian and author and newspaperman and retiree and just a great Northumberland resident. And I'm glad to say he's a friend of myself and my father as well. Thank you, John, for coming up today. Thank you, Mark. Enjoy it.